Uh, there was a new uh, ride released at Universal Studios on uh, the 13th, I believe, about two weeks ago. Um, it, it's in the Harry Potter part of the park, and the ride is uh, Hagrid's Magical Creatures Motorbike Adventure. Has anybody gone to ride it yet? Really? I haven't either. Uh, but people, it was on the news, and people waited up to 10 hours in line on opening day to ride the ride in June in Florida, outside. Now, a less known story, a less known story in the media is that on that same day, aliens from the planet Zorfax X31 were beamed down into Universal Studios. And they were, of course, unfamiliar with the idea of amusement park rides to them, uh, such uh, non-productivity-based mindless entertainment was very uh, unthought of. They had never been exposed to it before. And so they were baffled as they walked through the park and saw all these long lines of people inching along in the unbearably hot sun. But not until they boarded a roller coaster themselves did they understand the motivation for what seemed like an extremely challenging process of standing out and waiting. And they said, now we understand. Bring on the long lines, because they had such fun on the roller coasters. (laughs) My point is this. Unless we are rightly motivated, Jesus' call to the radical challenge of following him is going to feel like an unbearable burden. And we will not desire it unless we are rightly motivated. So what I'd like to do today is discuss first that actual radical challenge to discipleship. And then I would like to talk about motivation. So Luke chapter 9, follow along with me if you would in your Bible or in the bulletin. Uh, Starting in verse 51, Luke chapter 9 is probably one of the, if not the most challenging chapter on discipleship in all of the Bible, okay? Jesus doesn't mince his words. He is calling people to what it actually means to follow him, and he will have nothing of half-heartedness, okay? It's a very challenging chapter. It's the same chapter where we read about anyone who wants to follow me must take up their cross and die daily. They must lose their life in order to save it. All of these things are in Luke chapter 9. Now, we come to the end of the chapter, and verse 51 says this, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, that is, taken up onto the cross, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Now, this is a turning point in the gospel and the actual literary structure of the gospel. Luke is telling us right now Jesus has begun his intentional march towards his own demise. And so we know that in the verses to follow, we're going to hear a lot about what it means to follow a crucified Savior in the way of suffering. And we get this little uh, this, little, this little story about Samaria, and there was a little riffraff between Samar- Samaritans and Jews, and John and James want to call down fire like the prophet Elijah to smite them, and Jesus rebukes them and says, no, that's not how we roll. But they move on to another city, and we're moving down in the passage a little way to verse 57. And we read this as they were going along the road. Someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, 
but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. That is, son, I live a life of rejection and homelessness. I don't live a life of luxury and comfort. And the cost of following me is great. Are you willing to enter in to a life of rejection? You see, being a follower of Jesus will lead to rejection. It will. And in the, in the Western world, it's different. In some places, it will actually lead to a rejection where your life is under threat of death. In some countries, in the Western world, I think probably what we face most is more of an ideological uh, uh, rejection based on uh, living and living our lives in accordance with uh, an ancient book that is closed minded and intolerant and primitive and all of these things that doesn't isn't conducive with where modern society is going. I think that's largely where rejection will come from. It will happen, though. When I first became a follower of Jesus, I lost some of my best friends, some of my very good friends. The distant, They immediately started distancing themselves from me because the things that they had heard about Scripture, while they were very ignorant in their understanding, they did not like what the Bible had to say. And so they began quickly to distance themselves from me. And I wasn't being mean or, or, or Bible-thumping or anything like that. It was just that they knew that my life had changed and they were not on board with what was going on in my life. One of my friends actually twisted my words. I had said something to her about someone and she twisted my words and began to spread a rumor that I had spoken poorly of this person, which wasn't true. I started getting phone calls. It was a very hurtful time. Um, You see, this will not happen to you if you just try to keep your faith in Jesus quiet to yourself. But you see, following Jesus is not a private affair. We live in this world that says, oh, I'm happy for you that you've got, you found your religion and your spiritual life and that's great, but keep it to yourself because everybody chooses their own path. And the whole message of Jesus is that we would go and proclaim his good news that there is salvation and no other name under heaven and that there is a world that is perishing and living apart from God and is going to continue to go that way for all of eternity if they don't hear the message of Jesus. But... You could keep it quiet to yourself. It's an option. You won't experience all the all the rejection and the difficulties and the difficulties that it ca- will cause in your relationships and in the way that the world views you. But Jesus actually assumes that his followers will be open about their allegiance to him. In fact, he says, if you deny the son of man before men, the son of man will deny you before the father. So there's actually an expectation that we will be that our faith is public Right. doesn't mean that you go out with a megaphone on the street corner and say, you're all going to hell unless you believe in Jesus. But your life should be marked by a visible allegiance to the king of kings and the Lord of lords. You see, Jesus calls us to speak up, but to do it with gentleness and respect. St. Peter says, always be ready to give an answer for the hope that is within you. But do so always with gentleness and respect. There's a lot of people out there who are pretty good about being bold, but they're lacking gentleness and respect. But then there's a lot of people who are gentle and respectable people who are not having any of the boldness in their life. And both of those are mistakes. Now, Jesus goes on and there's another fellow and Jesus calls out to him and he says, follow me, forsake all and follow me. 
And the guy says, well, I first I need to go bury my father. Now, it might seem, and Jesus says, let the dead bury their dead. Now, it might seem like Jesus is being insensitive, but we know that Jesus adhered to the commandments, one of which was to honor your father and your mother. And Jesus believed in that. Jesus was part of a family himself and knew what it was meant to obey God by honoring his father and mother. So he's not uh, saying, be disrespectful. Who cares about your family? Um, the process of burial in the ancient Jewish world, it was about a year-long process because there was an initial burial. And then once the, the, the body had become bones, they would take the bones and bury them in another place in an ossuary. And so this is like a man saying, you know what? When I get my affairs in order within a year, I'll be ready to follow you. And Jesus' point isn't, hey, forget about your family. They don't matter. He's actually saying, where is your ultimate allegiance? Will you show me first that your ultimate allegiance is actually with the kingdom of God? Because you see, in this life, it's actually possible to idolize our families and, and our relationships. And the thing is, our families are extremely important. God has placed us within a particular families for a reason. But our families are not, even our biological families are not ultimate, right? They're not the ultimate goal. The ultimate goal is following Jesus in the kingdom, in the kingdom of God. You see, this is an issue for some of us. This is a difficult issue for some of us because we deal with, we see in our own lives and in our own family, some people who are very close to us, who we know in the depths of our heart are living a life that is at odds with the gospel, They're rejecting it. I have a family member who's very close to me that I love dearly. And she thinks that God is smiling upon a life of immorality that she is living in or an illicit relationship. And I have and I love this person. And, and, And she said, everything's fine. God loves me. He approves of what I'm doing. He just loves it. I can just feel his love all the time. And I said, do I love you dearly? But you are fooling yourself. You cannot walk in a life of sin and immorality and rejecting God. And then claim that you feel that he loves you. And she knows it because she knows the word. You see, and it's a very difficult position to be in. But I am not going to compromise the gospel. Think about this in the long term. Think about, think about just keeping your mouth shut and just going, yeah, you know, to each his own. I'm glad you're comfortable. You know, I might not think it's the greatest thing, but I want you to be happy. Think about the outcomes, possible outcomes from that. You consider you compromise the gospel for the sake of your your friends or your family's comfort. One of two things is going to happen They're They're either one. It's going to to actually hear the truth or they're living a lifestyle that is apart from God because they won't be challenged to actually hear the truth. Or it could demonstrate to them that Jesus is not the ultimate Lord of your life because they know what you believe and they know it's different. But you don't actually have the boldness to say, hey. This is the truth and I'm going to stand on it and I want you to know it because God loves you and he wants to he wants to draw you in and away from this. You see, it does us no good to keep our mouths closed and to deny speaking the truth of the gospel to people. But now think about what else could happen if, if you're honest, if you're bold. God could use your uncompromising allegiance to Jesus to draw others to him. What, what, what might it look like years down the road when someone comes out of a, a lifestyle of sin and addiction and idolatry and they say, you know what, it was because of you, because you didn't compromise and you actually spoke the truth and love to me that I needed to hear at that time. And I saw what you had. I saw the joy and the love in your life that you had because of your relationship with Jesus. And I realized that I was broken and I needed that too. You see, what could, don't underestimate how God will use faithfulness even when it's difficult in the time. 
There is a time and a place when we're called to speak difficult and challenging words to the people that we love. And there is a lie in this culture that says if you do not love and fully affirm someone's lifestyle, decisions, beliefs, and behaviors, you don't love them. And that is a lie. Because there is a way and there's a very biblical model for it. There's a way to handle that and it is to present the truth. Paul says we are always speaking the truth in love. And if, you, if speaking the truth to someone, if it's a challenging truth, it's not coming from a place of compassion and love for their eternal salvation, for their wholeness as a person, then it's not coming from a place of love. But you see, there's a way that you don't compromise either one of those. There's a way. Now, there's a finally, there's another guy. And he says, I will follow you. And then what's the next word? But. We could just stop right there. We don't need to read the rest of the story. And Jesus says, no one who puts their hand to the plow, that is, begins the work of labor and looks back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Right. This is uncompromising, radical commitment that Jesus calls us to. I met someone recently who had been, uh, who was, who was, uh, seeking Jesus somewhat, but was living apart from him, did not know him as personal Lord and Savior. And I was, do, I was ministering to him, doing some evangelism, sharing my own story. And I said to him, I felt the Lord give me a boldness. And I said to him, look, if you're going to follow Jesus, I didn't say, oh, it's going to be great. You know, things are going to get better. I said, it's going to be costly for you. There's going to be things you have to give up in your life. There's going to be things that challenge you. There's going to be things that you have to do and let go of to actually follow Jesus as Lord and Savior. And you know what? Within two, two weeks, that person had given their life to Jesus. You see, it's not all, we don't always have to, you know, try to make it as gentle and pave the path and try to make it smooth. Sometimes people need to hear. This is a challenge. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who, who gave his life as a martyr for the church in the 20th century as he was opposing Hitler, he said this, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. You see, there's a radical forsaking of everything in us that would resist giving. We can't, Jesus just, we can't compartmentalize and say, I want to keep this little area of me to me. I want to keep this little area of my life to myself, Jesus. But other than that, I will follow you. But I can't give up this. And Jesus says, you can't hold on to those things because then there's no room for me to have all of you. And that's what he wants. Now, these are difficult words. If they don't make you a little bit uncomfortable in your pew, you're not hearing them because they make me uncomfortable here as I'm speaking them. It's a radical challenge to call to discipleship. But if we're not rightly motivated, trying to go after that life of discipleship will become an empty, legalistic, overbearing burden that none of us will ever be able to accomplish. So, Here's the question. How can anyone follow that radical challenge? How can anyone even want to follow that radical challenge? And my answer is this, is because they have learned to delight in the Lord. See, we, what we don't realize is that God actually wants us to live a life of delight and of joy in following him. What he wants to do is not just impose new rules and restrictions on our life. He's giving us commandments to follow that will actually set us free so that we will actually, our hearts will come into alignment with his and we will begin not only to follow his will, but to delight in it and find joy in it. 
That's a sign of maturity in one's spiritual life is that you start to actually delight in the Lord. You start to find joy. Psalm 37, the psalmist in Psalm 37 says, delight yourself in the Lord. and He will give you the desires of your heart. See, that that is an element of the relationship that we often miss. And there's probably some of you sitting in this room today who the Christian life has felt like a burden or an oppressive force in your life. And so you've kind of been one foot in, one foot out. And what the Lord wants for you is to learn how to enjoy your relationship with him. He's daddy. He's Abba. His heart is so full of compassion and mercy towards us. Um, In John chapter 15, Jesus is talking to his disciples before he goes to the cross I just want to read you what he says. He says, as the father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. Then he says this, these things I have spoken to you, that your that my joy be in you and that your joy may be. God desires a life that is full of joy and delight. In Psalm 16, we read this. David is pouring out his heart to the Lord and he says, In your presence, there is fullness of joy. That that should transform the way that we enter into prayer. We go there because in the Lord's presence, there is joy. But I wonder how many of you picture the Lord as a, as a, as a rather somber-faced grump rather than full of joy. He's a, he's a joy, he's a personal being who has joy. It's his character. A fruit of the Holy Spirit is joy is because the Holy Spirit has joy. This is why so many people lack a hunger for God is because they haven't learned to delight in the Lord because their vision of the Lord has not been transformed Some people say this, I just can't do it. I'm too broken. My life is off track. There's, there's no way I could follow Jesus. This is, is, this is is too much. I can't do it. Friends, you say that you don't understand the mercy of God. You don't understand his relentless pursuit of you. Just a few chapters later, Luke, who tells us this same story about these really challenging calls for people to, to, to forsake everything and follow Jesus. He tells, he shows us Jesus telling three different parables. And the first is the parable of the lost sheep, where the shepherd, who in this uh, parable is uh, pictured as, uh, as the heavenly father, who one sheep gets lost and wanders from the rest of the fold, and he leaves all of the rest of them, and he goes after that one sheep, searching for it until he finds it. And he gently takes it gently in his arms and puts it over his shoulders, and he comes back and he rejoices that he's found that one sheep. Then he goes on and he tells the second parable about a woman who lost a very valuable coin in her house. And so she lit a lamp and frantically looked for it with a broom until she finds it. And when she finds it, she rejoices because of the value of that coin. And then, of course, is the parable of the prodigal son who takes his inheritance and goes and squanders it and lives a life of immorality in a far-off land, right? He goes to Vegas and he spends it all. And he realizes I'm left with nothing. I'm empty. I'm broken. I'm lost in my sin. I'm going to go back to my father and I'm going to beg that he'll just let me be a servant. Some of us have that mindset when we go to God. I'm just going to beg that he'll just let me be a servant in heaven because I'm not worthy. And then Jesus gives us a picture of the father. And when the father sees the son coming back, he runs to him 
And he embraces him and throws his arms around him. Son, I love you so much. I could see you in the distance. I knew your voice. I've been waiting for you. I, but dad, you don't understand what I've done. Forget about it. I've wiped it all away. I've forgotten about it. Because you're my son. You're my daughter. Your homework for the week is, practical homework, is to go home and read Luke chapter 15. Read those three parables. And as you read them, say to yourself, I'm the lost sheep. I'm the missing coin. I'm the prodigal. And allow the love of God to wash over you so that you can delight in him. That's what he wants. You see, the reality is this, is that we fail at following Jesus and so we become dejected. We, we, we fail at him. Friends, you know, I stand up here and I talk about how excited I am about my spiritual life and things like this, but you have to know that I fail too. I fail too. I don't wake up every single day and, and, and with a, a, a little, uh, a little hop in my step and have perfect, peaceful and joyful fellowship with the Lord for hours on end. I don't. I fail. I struggle. I sin. I feel very distant from the Lord sometimes. I go through dry periods. And I miss countless opportunities to help those who are in need or to share the gospel with the lost. But when I do, I cling to the promises of Scripture. My favorite, one of my favorites is from Lamentations chapter 3. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. Say never. Never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And so when I see my shortcomings in my life of discipleship, I don't give up. I turn around, I repent, and I turn back and I press in deeper. That's what God wants because there's two ways that we can deal with failure in our lives, moral failure, failure in our spiritual life, feeling like we don't, aren't giving to God what we owe him. There's two ways to respond to that. And a lot of people, when that happens, they run away from God because they feel like he's the, you've seen Bruce Almighty, he's the almighty smiter, right? And God, the God of the Bible is the God of compassion who can't wait for you to run back to him because he's eager. The Bible says that he is quick to forgive. That means he is eager to forgive sins. He can't wait to pick you up in your brokenness and say, you're my child. Let me heal you. Let me bind up your broken wounds. And apply the salve of my forgiveness and my mercy. So you can run away from God. Or you can run to him into his arms. Micah chapter 7 says, He delights in steadfast love. He actually likes when he gets to forgive us and love on us in our places of brokenness. And then he says this, the prophet says to the Lord, You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. See, he's eager to do that. Some of us carry around guilt for certain things. And the Lord says, drop that. Let me drop that into the sea where you'll never see it again and where I won't look at it ever again. It'll be gone and you'll be free. Friends, nowhere was this love that allows us to live a life of delight and commitment in the Lord. Nowhere was this demonstrated more clearly than in the death of Jesus. First John chapter four says, in this is love. Not that we loved God. We didn't wake up one day and decide God is good. I'm going to love him. Actually, we were doing the opposite of that. 
ignoring him and living apart from him and trying to make our own way and our making, create our own happiness in the world. Not that we loved God, but here's the good news, that he loved us and gave his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. When you were lost, when you were broken, when you were at your most messed up place, God looked at you and loved you. And he sent his son so that the gap that stood between us, his holiness and our sin, would be bridged and that we would be brought into his presence and we could call him Abba, Father. See, Jesus didn't give his life so that we could follow him in dutiful drudgery. Uh, I guess I'll go to church because, you know, God will probably be upset if I don't go. I better pray because he'll be mad at me and he won't bless me. It's an image of God that needs to be healed. A lot of us. See, he gave his life so that the power of sin and unbelief could be broken and that we could have a new life, resurrection life, new creation life, eternal fellowship with him in his Holy Spirit who dwells in us so that he could flow through us and enable us to take delight in following him as costly as that is and to boldly make known to others the good news that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes on him would not perish but have eternal life. Let's pray. Lord, sometimes we have nothing to hang on to in our spiritual lives, but we hang on to your mercy by a thread. And I pray for everyone in this room, Lord, who has struggled with guilt, want for them, feeling like they just always fall short of what you want for them. God, I pray for the comfort of your Holy Spirit to come. And where it's needed, Lord, the conviction of the Holy Spirit to come and to bring things to mind that need to be let go of, where your forgiveness needs to be poured over. Lord, we ask that you touch us with your presence right now in this room. And as we begin to enter into a place of worshiping you, Lord, that you would lift the heaviness from us and that you would remind us that following you costs everything, but in return we gain everything. And that right now in this very moment, we can enter into a life of delight and joy because in your presence there is fullness of joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and worship together.